0: Um, I asked Bert to do something very specific today. Uh, back in January, I, I mentioned this last week, but our elder team went away. Uh, actually, all of the elder teams from all of the Anthem churches, Camarillo, Ventura, Denver, and Thousand Oaks, we all went away to Forest Home, and we, uh, we spent some time just preparing for the year. We wanted to look prophetically at the year ahead. We wanted to look biblically at the year ahead. And one of the things that, uh, that Bert did is he took about an hour and walked us through the entire book of 1 Peter, through the lens of how it is training us to be resilient disciples, it was a phenomenal teaching. Like honestly, it just—it I went back and re-listened to it because it just shaped something in me, and I was so grateful for it. Even just going into this year in the unknowns of of coronavirus and and elections and that kind of thing, grateful to have that message to look back on. So as we got ready to finish up First Peter, I called Bert and I said, "Would you come and?" And do that message again. Obviously, we don't have a full hour, but can you bring just like a honed in version of that message? Because what, what I'm hoping for today is to take Bert's ability as a teacher to take these pieces that can seem disconnected and bring them into a cohesive reality. He's so gifted at that. This, isn't, uh, this is a, re- a really important Sunday for me for you to hear this. I know that was an awkward sentence, bad grammar, but that's okay. I want you to hear this message because I think it helps bring First Peter into a, a different kind of perspective. So this is really taking a lot of what we've done over the last 16 weeks and culminating it in a message that, uh, that's going to help us see life differently. So, Bert, why don't you come on up here? Uh, Bert did marry Sherry. He now has three children, Calvin, Truman, and Emerson, who are just wonderful children. We love watching this young family grow up. Lives in Ventura, California. Leads Anthem Ventura. That's all the, all the stats. And here you go. Here's Bert. It's
1: right here, okay? Am I in the box? Am I in the zone? Matt said I could wear sunglasses. Uh, He said when he did not, it made him look angry the whole time because he was squinting in the sun, but sunglasses make you look mysterious, so I'm taking mysterious over angry today. Hello, it really is. I know like, I don't know, a small fraction of you guys today, but I just want you guys to know how deeply Sherry and I's hearts are tied to you guys. Um, not Not only just that you sent us off to start a church in Ventura, but we had formative years here with many of you guys, and you guys have spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort um, helping propel this gospel work in Ventura and so even before we begin, I just want to say thank you, and I want to say even if i don 't know you, I love you and i 'm so grateful for the story God is writing here in Thousand Oaks and so honored and delighted to be with you guys today. Um, uh, special hello to everyone who's watching online uh, right now, live. Uh, so thankful that you're here with us. And special hello to everyone who's going to watch this later because their kids were bugging them this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, do take it, open it up to the book of First Peter. Open it up to the book of First Peter. You guys have just finished it, or I guess we'll finish it next week, right? That's the plan. Um, and, and like Matt said, what I'm hoping to do today is to take the whole of First Peter, place it in a little bit of context for our moment that we find ourselves in. How First Peter helps us meet the challenges of 2020, but also how First Peter will help us meet the inevitable challenges of 2021 uh, as we look ahead towards that. Now, First Peter, just as a reminder, was written to Christians. It was written to Christians who were dispersed. They were, as Peter calls them, elect exiles. They were displaced from their primary home, and they were sorting out how to live in this new context. And so Peter writes to help them understand how to live where they are, which is modern day Turkey in the text, but that's not their homeland So they're displaced, they're trying to sort through the cultural differences, the persecution. Peter's talking to them about enduring, he's talking to them about suffering, living differently because primarily our hope is different than those who do not know Jesus. So Peter can tell them, you can endure suffering. You can persevere through cultural differences. You can live in a way that is different than those who don't know Jesus because you know Jesus, and that is where your hope is found, his saving work and his true life. Now, while it's not identical circumstances, it is safe to say that we live in a time and place where the kingdom of God is not here in full, right? Any amens out there? Okay, just checking to see if you guys are alive. So in light of that, we have a lot to learn for what First Peter says. So the question I want to ask, that's going to frame our time here today, is, as followers of Jesus, how do we meet this moment? As followers of Jesus, what is First Peter's call specifically on our lives here in, in the fall, winter of 2020, looking towards 2021? I'm going to give you the answer right up top, and then we're going to spend some time unpacking it. According to Peter in his letter, to be a Jesus-centered person, to live a Jesus-centered life in our exile is to become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. According to 1 Peter, this is what it means to follow Jesus in our exile, and in my study this has really been the overarching meta narrative of first peter and it's been actually such a profound like statement and observation from the text that actually about a year ago it's entirely shaped our whole local church in Ventura it's been our framework it's been a rallying cry it's been the grid through which we say yes and no to things it's been our grid for discipleship in these current moments here becoming resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. I want to unpack how we do that. But before we unpack how we do that, I think it's important to make sure we're on the same page about what those words actually mean. Because we can all bring a little bit of bias, a little bit of context, a little bit of baggage to the conversation when we talk about resiliency, when we talk about discipleship. Etc. So I just want to unpack that statement really briefly before we get to how we do it. To be resilient has two primary meanings. It means one, to recover quickly from difficulties. So think of like toughness or a hardness or resistance, the ability to withstand attack. But its second meaning is really important. It doesn't mean to only recover quickly from difficulties, but to actually spring back into shape. to to actually get back up, to fight, to contend, to recoil, to actually come back stronger because of adversity. So resilience is what a person or a team or a group or a community needs in order to emerge from inevitable challenges, not only intact, but also with refined skills and deeper wisdom. A really great example about how Peter addresses that is in his opening in chapter one, verse 13, where he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So according to Peter, resilient disciples grow more like Jesus, not in spite of, but because of resistance and our location and placement in a world that is not our ultimate home in our exile, in a kingdom, in an empire, in a culture that exerts enormous coercive power and pressure. And we, as followers of Jesus, are forced to set our hope on someone or someone else. Thus, we not only resist the pulls of the world, we not only come back, but we actually come back stronger. We are resilient disciples. We've done a lot of work here over the years understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So in short, disciple does not equal Christian. Nor does Christian always equal disciple. There's something different about how Jesus talks about discipleship than how many of us have come to understand Christianity. To be a disciple is simply a student, a learner, or one of my favorite words is an apprentice. Someone learning from their master. This word disciple in Hebrew comes from this word Talmud, which means instruction. So disciple, Talmudim, just simply means one of instruction, which means you are a constant and perpetual learner from the master, Jesus. And in Jesus' time, as he was calling disciples, and in our time, what it means to follow Jesus is to orient your life around three primary goals is to be with Jesus, the first and most important goal, to spend our time with him. This is the baseline for all those who would follow Jesus. And as we like to say, the best part about following Jesus is Jesus, is that we get Jesus and to be a disciple of Jesus means to become like him out of that place of abiding with him, dwelling with him. The goal was and is to become just like him, to be conformed into his image. So depending on your spiritual heritage, if you have some, this might have been called sanctification or spiritual growth. Or according to Paul, it would just say growing in maturity or keeping in step with the spirit. And the third goal is to do what Jesus did. So the goal is not that you would know a lot about Jesus or the Bible, although that's helpful. It's good, but that's not the goal. The goal is that you yourself would become the kind of person that is with becoming like and actually doing the things that Jesus did, or better yet, doing what he would do if he were you and had your family, your career, your set of circumstances, and all of that. We are becoming resilient disciples, who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion. We are always formed into something just by waking up in the morning you are being formed. Just by waking up today, you have already been formed by about 100 different voices, pulls, and influences, whether it be email, social media, news, your kids, your spouse, whatever. You are always being formed. And as we talk about what it means to become like Jesus, we have to realize the forces that are pulling us away from that goal. Martin Luther, the famous theologian, identified those primary forces pulling us away from that goal as the world around us, the culture, The enemy, like Satan, his demons, and the evil that wants to stop you from becoming more like Jesus, and our own flesh, our own inward innate desires for self-gratification, are all pulling us away from the goal of becoming like Jesus. So the question is not, are you being formed, but what are you being formed into, and the invitation of Scripture is to choose to be shaped by the Holy Spirit into the character and image of Jesus. It takes intentionality in the face of intense cultural coercion, pressure, and formation from the world, from the enemy, and from our own flesh. The invitation of Scripture is to become more like Jesus We do that purposely and with intentionality. In the words of Peter, preparing your minds for action. So we are resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. So to live a vibrant life in the spirit is not counting down the clock until you die or Jesus comes back. It is actually thoughtfully and fully engaging in this world that we are in. It's to quote Jesus from John 10:10, 10, 10, living life to the full, living life abundantly, keeping in step with the Spirit. Now, here's the goal: here in vibrancy in the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit becomes the dominant voice and reality over the voice of your environment. And we learn to enjoy the fruit of being aware of and attentive to the Spirit in the everyday stuff of life. So, the call of First Peter is to become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. This is what Peter is getting at. This is the underlying foundation and basis for how and why he is writing. And this is the call for you and I as we encounter the letter of First Peter in the text, to be shaped and to be formed, to become resilient disciples not passive consumer Christians, to be faithful in the face of cultural coercion, not to give way to every wind of what's popular and every different fad, to live a vibrant life in the spirit, not grinning and bearing it and running out the clock, but thoughtfully enjoying the presence of Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And this all sounds great, right? If we love Jesus, this sounds great. and We're like, yeah, this is what I wanna do. This this kind of makes sense. But how do we actually do that? Which is a great question, I'm glad you asked. I'll answer that. The entire first, letter of 1 Peter is answering that question. How do we actually live this kind of life? And so we are going to survey the book of 1 Peter. It's gonna take us about 30 minutes and we'll break it down into five primary parts that are all answering this question of how do we become, can anyone finish the question for me? Resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. So, take your Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're breaking this into five primary parts. And what's beautiful about what 1 Peter does is we kind of are just going to move through chapters 1 through 5 in these different movements. And number one in the how, and arguably one of the most important, is that we are immersed in the story of God and we are growing in biblical literacy. From the ABCs of the gospel to the A to Z story of God, from creation to restoration, disciples of Jesus are immersed in and treasuring the long story of God that we are welcomed into. So this combats a very specific problem in the church today, which is a secular worldview inside the church. And so this might manifest itself in authority issues or a lack of reliance on or an illiteracy of Scripture because we don't believe it's actually important. It might manifest in a lack of belief in the supernatural or engaging with the Holy Spirit or like a materialistic and naturalistic worldview. And it might lead to skepticism about the things of Jesus, which leads to apathy and indifference about our life in God. And Peter says, our identity is grounded in Jesus, and we bring a God-centered presence to a self-centered age by relying on Holy Scripture. Any work on our part always begins with a deep understanding and gratitude for the work already done by God. And we understand that work by engaging with the story of God in Scripture we see this in 1st Peter right at the very beginning after his introductions in verses 3 through 5. Peter said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, one of the most important things for us To understand is our place in the story of God and to be literate in the story of God. I could have just said, it's important for us to understand the gospel, but it's worth calling out these two things to meet some particular challenges that we face today, which is biblical literacy and understanding that God's story is actually a story that we live in. You see, more and more Christians, particularly in the West, do not read scripture. They don't know how to read it. They don't even like it. And frankly, many Christians take issue with it. But Peter says, it's the good news that was preached to you, and it lasts forever. In verses 24 and 25 of chapter one, Peter says, And he quotes the prophet Isaiah here, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this was the good news that was preached to you. Now, if we look at the life of Jesus, we see a life deeply entrenched in the Hebrew scriptures or what we would call the Old Testament. Jesus quoted the scriptures, he meditated on the scriptures, he wrestled with the scriptures, he interpreted the scriptures, and he found his identity in the scriptures. And he built his ethics on the scripture and framed the entire world in the story that the scriptures tell. Now, here's the reality. All human beings live by a story, a narrative, by which we make sense of the big questions of life. Like, who are we? Why are we here? What is wrong with the world? How do we fix what's wrong in the world? The story we live in is inevitably the story we live out. Peter recognizes this too by framing our own salvation, which is what the entire beginning part of chapter one is all about, it is our salvation. He frames our salvation in the big story of God in verses 10, 11, and 12, when he says, concerning this salvation, which is yours, your salvation, Okay, prophets, preachers, angels, all wrapped up in the story of God and all wrapped up in your salvation, which means you encountering Jesus was not a solitary, individualistic, personal moment. No, 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 this is actually something that for hundreds and thousands of years, prophets and preachers have labored in to get you to. You are wrapped up into this. God was in your mind years and years and years before you ever said yes to Jesus. It comes as no surprise then that most of the Bible is actually narrative, it's story, and that together it, le- it tells a unified story that leads us to Jesus. Scripture functions as the alternative story to the many narratives of our soul and society and calls us to live in alignment with the real true story of God, not what, whatever we read in our news app for today, not what, whatever we're seeing on social media, not even the stuff that comes from inside of us. But we have the true story of God with which to align our lives with. So how do we become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit? Number one, we immerse ourselves in the story of God and we are growing in biblical literacy. Number two, how do we become these resilient disciples? By understanding our Jesus-centered, exilic identity. By understanding our Jesus-centered, exilic identity. Okay, so the problem this is going to meet face-to-face that is in the church right now is wanting the kingdom of God without the king. It's wanting the things of Jesus without Jesus himself. So this might manifest in the growing irrelevance of evangelicalism in the light of intertwining of religion and politics over the last 30 or 40 years. It might manifest itself in the need to find personal and political utopia this side of heaven which says real change will come through fill in the blank. Whatever your thing is, better government, bigger government, smaller government, less taxes, more taxes, recycling, environmental conservationism, whatever your thing is, if we believe that's the thing that will finally fix what's broken in society, we are wanting the kingdom without the king. We are wanting all the good things that Jesus talks about without actually submitting our lives to Jesus and having our lives shaped by Jesus. So Peter says our identity is fixed on the person of Jesus, who he says we are, and we are citizens of a very different kingdom and know that only by bringing his kingdom from heaven to earth will we see real change for good and that the ultimate redemption and restoration does not come from government. It does not come from systems. It does not come from elected officials. It does not come from a community doing good, but only by Jesus himself when he returns. To this end, All over the place, Peter is helping us understand who we are before he tells us how to engage in the world around us. In chapter 1, verse 1, he calls us exiles. We're not of this world. This should change our worldview and expectation of this world. He calls us obedient children that we don't get wrapped up into our former ignorance. We know better. In chapter 1, 15 and 16, he calls us holy. We're set apart, becoming holy because he is holy. In chapter 2, 2 and 3, he says we are newborn infants longing and craving for the spiritual milk that sustains us. In 2 verse 4, he says we are rejected by men and accepted by God. He calls us living stones being built up into a spiritual house where Jesus himself is the cornerstone and a holy priesthood that we would offer what we offer to God will be acceptable and pleasing to him. In chapter 2, verse 9, he calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So we are treasured. We are bought and paid for people. We weren't a people, but he's made us a people. He's made us his people. In chapter 2, verse 10, he calls us those who have been shown mercy, mercy we did not deserve. In chapter two, 11 and 12, he calls us sojourners and exiles. This is not our home. As a reminder, in case we've forgotten, this is not our home. We're here temporarily. So in verse 12, we live in a way that points people to God. From what God has already done, which is the first part of chapter one, to who he's made us to be, to where he picks up in verse 13 and goes all the way through chapter two, verse 12, he says this, live your life as exiles, So that those who are in this world would see your good deeds and glorify our God in heaven. Which is immediately a gut check for how we live. Do the people in our lives who do not know Jesus see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven? Peter says this comes from having a Jesus-centered identity, wanting the kingdom with its king. When we pursue the king and inevitably through our pursuit of the king, the kingdom comes through our lives. People will look at our lives and go, you have to tell me why you live like that. I have to understand why your hope is not here. I have to understand why you live differently. So Peter says we're humble, sacrificial people of peace. So we reject wrong ideas about leadership and influence that say our worth is what we create and our influence is equal to the size of our platform. We are conscious of the relentless pull towards anxiety and make deliberate choices to live in sync with an unruffled, unhurried God word rhythm because we are confident of who we are in him. And when we live like that, people will look at our lives and ask why? You have to tell me. How do we become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit by immersing ourselves in the story of God and growing in our biblical literacy by understanding our Jesus centered exilic identity and number three by cultivating deep and healthy relationships with one another. So the problem this meets in our time and our place is the raging problem of being overconnected and hyper-isolated. And I'm not talking about social distancing. This was alive and present long before COVID ever hit us, that we are more connected than we have ever been and we are more isolated than we have ever been, all at the same time, which manifests itself in things like loneliness, anxiety, and depression. In a recent study, it says about 1 in 5 globally suffer from some form of anxiety and that number is higher in the US 3 in 10 and partly this has been attributed to the disconnect between life online and life in person there's a recent study that came out of i believe the university of arkansas if i'm remembering that right uh, it's the first definitive study that has scientifically linked social media with depression that because of the lives we live online It is neurologically and physiologically changing us to become more connected and more isolated than we have ever been before. And this has all been exacerbated by COVID-19 where most of our life is now lived online in some form or fashion. And we have a funny way of curating an online life that looks suspiciously different than our real in-person lives. Whether it's we're more bold, we're more quick to comment, quick to speak, Or maybe we are a little more polished, the veneer is a little bit different, we look a little bit slimmer, you know, you kind of like re-image some of the pimples on your face or whatever. So we get to the point where it's like living, it's like playing The Sims. Is that a really outdated reference? It's like living life that's not real life, but it feels like real life. So Peter says we are emotionally connected to others in our communities and in our households. We have a healthy connection to those we lead, those who lead us, and those around us in community, which is neither cold and detached nor codependently enmeshed. So here Peter talks about how that identity translates into all sorts of roles that we play here on earth. Masters, slaves, bosses, employees, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, citizens, all of that. And in all of that, There are four key principles that emerge from Peter's conversation about how we relate well and healthy to one another. Number one, he says we live in rebellious submission, okay? This means submitting even when you don't want to. That's what I mean by rebellious. It's not like revolution. It's revolution by radical submission. In chapter two, verses 13 and 14, Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. What does it look like to live in rebellious submission in our 80th lockdown in the longest nine months of my life? (laughs) What does that look like? Number two, we live with conscious self-control i.e., what are we using our freedom for? To benefit ourselves or to benefit others? Chapter 2, verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Number three, we live with a sacrificial heart. This is our default posture towards others. In chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. All of those include a bit of dying to ourselves to actually live that out. And number four, we live with a commitment to not pull away when things get hard, i.e. loving each other is not a one-time deal. Chapter four, verse eight, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, meaning you will be sinned against a multitude of times. And the solution is love. How do we become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and live a vibrant life in the spirit? One, immersing ourselves in the story of God and growing in biblical literacy. Two, understanding our Jesus-centered exilic identity. Three, cultivating deep and healthy relationships. And four, by living as suffering witnesses to our suffering Savior which meets the problem head on of our weak view of suffering and our unwillingness to take up our own cross, which manifests itself in somehow the idea that inconvenience equals persecution, which manifests itself in the expectation of instant success, instant influence, or instant wealth, or the frustration that the church doesn't do enough but I don't actually want to be part of the solution. A distrust in institutions, which also expect them to do everything for us, but also says, I don't want to show up, but I want those institutions to be there when I want them there. So I don't want to go to church, but I want church to be there when I want it. And it manifests itself in entitlement and self-centeredness. And Peter says, resilient disciples live as exiles amid a world that will, promised, will reject our message. We are in the world, but we are not of it. And Peter's premise is quite simple here. Becoming more like Jesus means being rejected by the world. So if the world loves you, you're doing something wrong. Being rejected by the world will lead to suffering in this world. So as a Christian, if you never experience any kind of suffering, any kind of inconvenience, any kind of discomfort, you're doing it wrong. Because according to Peter, if you are faithful to Jesus, life will be uncomfortable. Life will hurt sometimes. Life will not be all that you think it should be. How do we live as suffering witnesses to a suffering savior in a comfort-driven world? Peter has some advice for us here. You guys ready? This is like gonna be some mad page turning if you got a Bible with you. He says to engage, chapter one, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says to resist the world that we are in. In chapter one, verses 14 and 15, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. And in chapter two, verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He tells us to suffer well. He says you will suffer, so you might as well do it well. Chapter two, verse 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He's like, yeah, that's, that's how the world works. But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And he says in chapter 3 verse 9 do not repay evil or revile do not pay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing And he says to engage with Christ as our example in chapter 3 verse 18 for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And again, in chapter four, verses one and two, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Right, so since Christ suffered, our de facto expectation should be suffering. Anything good is like a bonus, all right? That's what Peter says for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God and he says we should look different check out chapter 4 verses 3 through 5 for the time that passed for the time that is past suffices for doing what the gentiles want to do living in sensuality passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says, yeah, yeah, everyone does this kind of stuff, right? Is that like normal life in Thousand Oaks? I don't know. I live in Ventura. You guys got to help me out. But he says, people do all this stuff. And he says, the time is past for all this stuff. With respect to this, all of those things right there, they, those who do not know Jesus, are surprised when you do not join in. In the same flood of debauchery and they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead they'll malign you but in the end they will confirm your witness because you did not join in we should look different so peter says don't be surprised when life hits the fan Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. How many of us? That was our posture, March 15th or whatever, when that first lockdown went in. Oh, I'm not so I saw this coming. Brilliant. Bring on the test. No, you were probably just like me. You were like mind going crazy. Could not handle the moment. Took a few weeks to get our bearings in that. But Peter says, Don't be surprised. He says, don't be surprised when suffering hits, when the fiery darts come, because it's to test you. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. What? Suffering? Wait, wait, hold on. Life isn't, like, perfect? He says, don't let this surprise you. This is the test you knew. This is no pop quiz. This is the test you knew was coming. But Peter says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In the next couple of verses, verses 15 and 16, he says, make sure though you're suffering for the right thing, i.e. don't suffer for stupidity. Unfortunately, this is our trap so often. We raise our hand and say we're suffering, but more often than not, it's because we're being dumb, not because we're being a faithful witness to our suffering savior. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Peter's got a thing against meddlers. I love that he includes that in with murder. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter says, because of all of that, how we respond to suffering in this world that we will promise will incur because of following Jesus should provoke something. Go back a little bit to chapter three, verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with loud social media posts and rioting. Do it with really aggressive YouTube comments. Do I have a different translation? Nope. Do it with, who's there? Gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that, so that, underline that, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Resilient disciples live the way of Jesus as suffering witnesses to our suffering Savior so that those who don't know Jesus would look at our good works and glorify God. How do we become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the Spirit? One, immersing ourselves in the story of God and growing in biblical literacy. Two, understanding our Jesus centered exilic identity. Three, cultivating deep and healthy relationships. Four, living as a suffering witness to our suffering Savior. And finally, five, by growing in and submitting to godly leadership. Our problem is an obvious one. We are a time, a place, a nation characterized by rejecting and resisting leadership and authority. So this has kind of manifested itself in the shifting view of authority from external things like the church or other institutions or older generations to personal self. Or a default lack of trust in those who are in leadership. When we see worldly leaders being worldly and Christian leaders not acting any differently. I don't know if there's been a time when I have opened up my news app and have not read about some Christian leader failing Morally. So we distrust leadership because Christian leaders are acting just the same as worldly leaders. And Peter says, Leaders, you lead humbly, willingly, eagerly, as an example to cultivate maturity in the church, so that when Jesus comes, He sees, he sees sheep well tended, and all of us together joyfully walk in submission to those God has put in authority over us. I believe this is the text you were in last week, First Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." So Peter instructs the elders of the church to shepherd the flock. This is the command. They are to feed and watch over the flock that is among them. The job of the elders is to shepherd by exercising good oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering, but being examples. Now, while Peter does attach this last part of chapter 5 to his section on godly leadership and eldership in the church, and I believe it's important, and he attaches that prowling lion, you know, for a reason, but in that text, there's application for all of us. And he says in verse 5 and 6, to be humble. Likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There are those in this world who would resist leadership, and the call to those in our church is humility. How will they learn that humility? Leaders will provide the example. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Worry, friends, is a form of pride. Because it involves taking concerns upon myself instead of entrusting them to God. Peter says believers can trust in God because as our father and Jesus as our chief shepherd cares for us. Verses eight and nine, be vigilant, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He's ready, he's waiting, and so often we are not ready. And Peter says, resist him, stand firm in your faith, be prepared for those fiery trials. Be prepared for an enemy that is prowling around, waiting for the opportune moment to take you out. And finally, in verses 10 and 11, he says, Be hopeful. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And that's where I want to land and end, is be hopeful. I understand this morning was maybe a bit of a fire hose to the mouth. And I understand that it may seem daunting to live out this call of 1 Peter. But through 16, 17 some odd weeks, you guys have gone through First Peter. Peter lands saying, be hopeful. Because our father cares for us. And he himself will strengthen you, he will restore you, he will confirm you, he will establish you. He who has called you will do these things for you. The task that we have ahead as resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit is hard. It's not an easy one. And I'm sure it's a life many of you guys did not sign up for, but here we are. And Peter says, be hopeful because God's doing the heavy lifting. And he who has called you will equip you. The call of First Peter is to become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit. How do we do that? By immersing ourselves in the story of God growing in our biblical literacy, by understanding our Jesus-centered exilic identity, cultivating deep and healthy relationships, living as a suffering witness to our suffering Savior, and growing in and submitting to godly leadership. How can this all happen? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he's brought resurrection life And resurrection hope to each and every one of us. Does all this seem impossible to you? Because it should, apart from the resurrection of Jesus. Does this seem like a tall order? It should, apart from the resurrection of Jesus. He has come, he has defeated death, and he has raised you. He is the resurrected Christ, your and my living hope. We have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us that is undefiled, unfading and will not perish. Jesus has been raised from the dead so we can be resilient disciples, withstanding cultural coercion and being faithful to him, living a vibrant life in the spirit and arguably maybe our collective hardest time ever in life. We can do this because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he's brought resurrection life and hope, not just for the future, but right now. So I want to close where we started in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 and 5. According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. You have a living hope. Jesus is guarding it. You can live the way of Jesus here and now because Jesus has rose from the dead and he has brought you resurrection life and resurrection hope. I'd love to pray a blessing for you. The team's gonna come up and lead us in some response and I'll kind of share how that's gonna happen, but I would love to pray a blessing for you. And so if you would, stand wherever you're at. And if you're able, maybe throw out your your hands in front of you, your arms right in front of you, just as a simple bodily posture to like receive. Jesus, I'm overwhelmed by your grace for us your movement toward us and the hope of life that we have in you, not just for the future, but for here and now. And we humbly, with a whole lot of self-awareness, say there is no way we can do this on our own. So Jesus, we ask that you would send your spirit afresh. Jesus, that you would enlighten us, that you would equip us, that you would empower us, that you would confirm, strengthen, establish, and restore us that you would equip us to live the way you've called us to live in a world that does not like you, and does not like the way of Jesus. Help us, Jesus, to become the kind of disciples that represent you well. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.